I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we're talking about uh, the most important voting rights cases of the year. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two combined cases from Alabama that asked the justices to puzzle through the complicated questions of the relationship between race and partisanship in the gerrymandering process. After the 2010 census, Republicans took control of the Alabama state legislature and passed a new legislative map, which maintained the same number of majority-minority districts in the state Senate and even added one such district in the House. Majority-minority districts are districts in which minorities predominate. But in order to narrow the population differences between the districts and to maintain the same percentage of minority voters in these districts, Republicans moved a lot of African-American voters out of majority white districts and into those with minority majorities. In response, the Alabama Democratic Party and the Alabama Legislative Black Caucus challenged the map in federal, federal court. They lost, uh, and now their cases are being considered by the Supreme Court. Joining me to assess the arguments on both sides and to offer their perspective on this week's oral arguments are two friends of the National Constitution Center and of our We the People podcasts. Rick Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the UC Irvine School of Law, where he teaches and writes about election law and campaign finance. He's also the editor of the authoritative and definitive source for information on this subject, the Election Law Blog. Roger Clegg is President and General Counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity. He is also a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Reagan and Bush administrations. Uh, all right, uh, gentlemen, let's get right to it. Rick, this is an extremely complicated uh, case uh, which represents the intersection of different parts of the Voting Rights Act, including Section 2, which requires minorities to have the opportunity to elect representatives of their choice, Section 5, which had prohibited uh, so-called retrogression where minorities lose voting strength, but which uh, the Supreme Court called into question last year. In a recent Slate piece, you, you put the uh, point nicely, you said, in the end, the Supreme Court has an impossible task in front of it, figuring out whether the Alabama legislature's predominant motive in redistricting was about race or about party. Tell us why that is the central constitutional question and unpack uh, how the justices uh, w will be asked to consider it. Well, I think that you've uh, set this up nicely. It is a very complicated case, but at bottom, uh, what happened here is that the uh, Alabama legislature newly controlled by Republicans in this round of redistricting, uh, packed uh, mostly black voters into a number of majority uh, minority districts, not only giving them control over those districts, but maintaining very high percentages within those districts. And, and the reason that that's important, and that's the key uh, to the understanding this case, is that by keeping those high percentages of minority voters in each of these districts, it lowered the um, voting power of African Americans and Democrats overall in the state. Because if you pack more of the same uh, 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 leaning voters into uh, this number of districts, there could be more Republican districts, more white Republican districts in Alabama. And here we know in Alabama, uh, party correlates very well with race. That is, most African Americans, uh, large majorities are voting for the Democratic Party. Large majorities of whites are voting for the Republican Party. 
Now, the um, challengers brought a number of different claims, including a claim of vote dilution, that this packing decreased minority voting strength. But that claim was rejected by the lower court, and the Supreme Court did not hear that. Instead, what the court heard, as you alluded to, is a so-called racial gerrymandering case. And in a racial gerrymandering case, the standard, and this was set in a, beginning in a 1993 United States Supreme Court case called Shaw versus Reno, the standard at its, as it's evolved at the Supreme Court is that if race is the predominant factor in uh, a redistricting, uh, and it subsumes other uh, factors such as protecting uh, lines of uh, cities and, and counties or communities of interest and other things, then uh, strict scrutiny applies and the law is, uh, uh, the redistricting is unconstitutional unless the government has a compelling reason to do this. And so the challengers argued that by packing these minority voters and making that the most important factor in redistricting, this constitutes a racial gerrymander. That's the question that's currently before the Supreme Court, and from my read of oral arguments, it's not clear exactly how the court's going to answer that question. Thank you very much, Rick, for, for setting us up so well. Roger, do you disagree with any aspects of the way Rick has framed the questions? And if not, um, you have written that uh, in whatever opinion it writes, the court should make clear that Section 2 and Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and the court's past jurisprudence should not be interpreted in a way that encourages race-based decision-making. Would that require the court to go further than it already has in the so-called Shaw cases that Rick has mentioned, which seem to allow some race-based uh, districting as long as race is not the predominant factor? Well, uh, in terms of how um, you know, Rick has set it up, I, I think he's done a, a reasonably good job of setting it up. I thought he did uh, a good job also in, in what he wrote on, on SCOTUS blog, sort of uh, outline the, the arguments um, that we heard yesterday before the Supreme Court. I guess the only quarrel that I would have or the only quibble I would have with Rick is that uh, while it's true that uh, sometimes uh, Republicans uh, like to use racial gerrymandering to pack uh, lots of African-American voters into a, uh, a few districts so that they can then be um, more competitive in the remaining districts, the Democrats don't have clean hands in this area either, as I think Rick would, would probably admit. Um, Typically, the, the Democratic strategy is to uh, use race to create a, a, a lot of um, majority-minority districts, um, but then to strategically also use race to uh, locate the remaining black voters in a, in a way that ensures that uh, the the Democrats uh, do as as well as possible in the in the remaining districts. So both uh, both parties, I think, unfortunately, uh, uh, are inclined to to uh, use race in in the way that they engage in in gerrymandering. I um, I hasten to say that the and I don't want to get you know too much in the weeds in in this case because as as Rick says it's uh, it's quite complicated, but um, the uh, trial court in this case did find that the Republicans in this instance in Alabama did not have race as the predominating uh, you know, factor in, in the way that they acted. Now, um, as, uh, as you all have both said, this is a, a very co complicated case in a very complex area, and as you were talking, I was uh, 
thinking of the title of a book uh, by Richard Epstein a few years ago, uh, which was Simple Rules for a Complex World. And to me, the only workable approach in this area uh, is, is simply to say that race should not be considered in uh, any way in, you know, by either party um, when they set up, uh, when, when they draw voting districts or do anything else related to voting. And I think that uh, that may require some, some fine-tuning of what the court has, has said in the past, but I think that that is consistent with the general trajectory of the court's opinions, and I also think it's the only workable uh, approach in, in this area of the law. Well, Rick Rogers put a clean, simple rule on the table that would essentially forbid the use of race in redistricting. Uh, tell us first how much the law would have to change if his view were adopted. Would that involve striking down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which seems to anticipate some kind of uh, race consciousness? And uh, could you imagine uh, four justices or more actually uh, agreeing with Roger? Well, to begin with, uh, I think that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act absolutely requires that uh, legislatures or others engaged in redistricting consider race in order to ensure, consistent with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, that members of protected minority groups have the same opportunities as others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. In fact, Chief Justice Roberts, speaking at the beginning of the oral argument in yesterday's Alabama case, talked about the difficulty that legislatures face in this area. On the one hand, the Voting Rights Act mandates that they make sure that minority voters get a fair shot at representation. And in places like Alabama, where whites are not going to vote for black candidates or black preferred candidates, um, not having that voting rights rule would mean essentially that the majority could swamp the minority and deprive it of any kind of proportionality in voting rights. But on the other hand, taking race too much into account under the Supreme Court's racial gerrymandering cases gets you in constitutional trouble. Chief Justice Roberts put it well when he said that uh, legislatures who are engaged in redistricting have to find what he called the sweet spot, taking race into account as required by the Voting Rights Act, but not letting it predominate, in which case it could be a racial gerrymander. Now, the real problem here, and this is what you alluded to in your introduction, is that because in places like the South, where there's racially polarized voting, whites voting for one set of candidates, African-Americans voting for another, and uh, those candidates tend to be Republicans for whites and African-Americans uh, 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 going for the Democratic Party, uh, how do you separate a predominant motive to, or predominant intent to favor Democrats versus African-Americans or whites versus the Republican Party? And it was clear that Justice Kennedy, who may well be the swing vote in this uh, case, was really struggling with this race or party question. Was this really about hurting black voters or was it about hurting Democrats? And, and, and sort of the backup argument of the uh, Solicitor General of Alabama was this was a partisan gerrymander intended to help Republicans and hurt Democrats with only an incidental effect on black voters. And how you disentangle that and how the court's going to do it is really unclear to me, having followed the oral argument in this case. 
Roger, how do you think the court will disentangle this crucial question of the relationship between racial and partisan gerrymandering? Accepting the case law on the books, it is true that the court in the uh, Cromartie case said that if the motive is partisan and not predominantly racial, it's okay. But as Rick suggests and as Justice Kennedy seemed to be agreeing, disentangling the two is hard. How how can the courts do so in a principled fashion? Well, you know, it's it, it, it can be hard, but on the other hand, when you think about it, this is actually, uh, I think, not a lot different from uh, concerns that uh, we might see in other areas of the law. And where, again, the, you know, the rule is fairly simple. Um, you are not allowed to use race as a proxy for uh, other characteristics, uh, even if there is a strong correlation between race and those other characteristics. So, for instance, in, in employment, uh, it may be that one group uh, is more likely to have graduated from high school uh, than another racial group. But employers are not allowed to say that, well, um, you know, rather than look to see if somebody has a high school diploma, we're simply going to make hiring decisions based on race. You know, the law is clear that uh, there may be a correlation, but you are still, as the employer, required not to use race as a handy proxy for uh, credentials, but to treat individuals as individuals, not as members of this or that racial group, and uh, look at their actual, uh, you know, the individual's actual credentials. And I think that likewise, um, that's what we should hold uh, decision makers to do in, in the political process. It may be that there's considerable overlap uh, between uh, race and, and, and political party, but it's not an absolute overlap, and there are black Republicans and there are uh, white Democrats, and uh, if the uh, you know the, the inquiry needs to be is what's being done being done in order to advance a political motive, or is it being done uh, to advance a uh, a racial end? And the former is okay, and the latter is not. Um, that's a thoughtful way of drawing the line. Um, Rick, let me ask you this. In your slate piece, you noted the divergence between the justices' own partisan affiliations and their constitutional views. You say, will the conservative justices who do not like race-based government classifications at all side with Democrats against the Republican Alabama legislature, or will the Supreme Court's conservatives, like the two Republican-appointed judges in the lower court, view this gerrymandering as partisan politics? And then you say that the liberal justices have an interesting choice, too. They could embrace the racial gerrymandering claims they've long resisted, breathing new life into a doctrine they've derided as nonsensical, or they could leave Alabama's gerrymander alone, strengthening Republican hands. Do you think that both sides will be uh, principled and consistent with their past jurisprudence or not, given the complicated partisan breakdown here? Well, you know, uh, only, uh, I think, well, I would say both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Scalia averted to this uh, set of ironies in this case. Justice Sotomayor, taking what I would say is the classic position of the liberal justices in these racial gerrymandering cases, said, uh, what's the harm here? If nobody's vote is being diluted, how is the consideration of race even a constitutional harm? That is, 
the liberals had rejected the Shaw line of cases, which I would say were used by mostly conservative Republicans in the 1990s to prevent uh, the creation of more majority minority districts and the increase in democratic voting power. Uh, Justice Scalia also said to Professor Pildes, uh, who was arguing uh, as one of the lawyers for the challengers to this law, uh, that he was making the same arguments, he, he representing the, the Democrats uh, in, in the state, he was making the same arguments that conservatives were making before the court a, a, a two decades ago or a decade and a half ago. Uh, there's, there's irony all around. Um, but, you know, when you are a, uh, a lawyer, you use the tools you have. And so it was very prudent for Democrats to raise the racial gerrymandering claim. It's just coming up in this ironic way. And I should say, this is not just what's happening in Alabama. There's an excellent article by Professor Justin Levitt of Loyola Law School, which I link to in both my Slate piece and my uh, SCOTUS blog preview of this case, where he traces how a number of Republican uh, uh, legislatures in redistricting this time have read the Voting Rights Act to uh, in a very strong way that ca is causing the packing of minority voters in, in, in a lot of these places and thereby helping Republicans throughout the, the jurisdictions. And in response, Democrats have been raising racial gerrymandering cases across the country. In fact, this came up in a recent congressional redistricting case out of Virginia, which is now going to be before the Supreme Court and probably be held for the decision in the Alabama case. So this has implications, even though Section 5 is, has been uh, made um, uh, moribund by the Supreme Court. This has implications even outside of that in understanding the relationship between Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and redistricting and, and uh, just the, the more general question of when is the Supreme Court going to police these gerrymanders and when is it going to leave it to the political process? Roger, uh, we understand that partisan actors are going to act in partisan ways, but this is a constitutional podcast, and I, I want to focus on that aspect of the irony that Rick just identified. Why shouldn't Republican justices, who have been so eager to detect racial gerrymandering in the past, uh, detect it here uh, merely because this time it's being used by Democrats? You mean by Republicans? Uh, de de Democrats here are uh, using the uh, Oh, the argument, I think. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. And then and, and, uh, that's being challenged uh, right. as unconstitutional. Why shouldn't Republicans be sympathetic to the Democrats' constitutional claim? Well, I think that if, um, if, if race is being used as the, uh, the deciding factor in, in redistricting, and, and if there are you know, racial motives as opposed to uh, partisan motives you know, afoot, they should be. Um, you know, I certainly am. And as I said at the outset, um, I'm not happy that uh, Republicans uh, frequently have used the Voting Rights Act as an excuse to engage in racial gerrymandering of, of one kind, just as I'm not happy when uh, Democrats uh, try to use uh, and advance racial gerrymandering of, of another kind. Um, you know, I, I, I think that they're, they're both wrong to, you know, to do that. And, um, you know, I, I would um, uh, add this caveat, though, that I think that the demise of, of Section 5 may make this something of a transitional case. Uh, and actually, I'd be interested in, in Rick's thoughts on that. Um, because Section 5 is, is, is no, and this was something else that was discussed at the oral argument yesterday, um, because Section 5 was something that was in the works 
uh, and and uh, something that had to be dealt with as this case developed, but is no longer. I think that uh, the posture of this case is, is you know, sort of on that cusp, and, and it makes it, as I say, sort of an interesting transitional case. And it may be possible for the, the court to issue a fairly limited decision that, and I, I think it's going to be a, a splintered decision too, but um, uh, a decision that sort of warns uh, future litigants um, that they need to be careful uh, when they are, are using race. They don't have to say a lot about using race uh, uh, pursuant to Section 5, but they can say something about Section 2, even though it's no longer in the case. And by the way, I don't think that uh, the text of Section 2 is uh, as clear in requiring that race be considered as, as, as Rick does. Um, and I think that in any event, I think that there are different ways to construe Section 2, some of which give race a much more prominent role than others. And it may be that what the court ends up doing is simply uh, construing Section 2 uh, so that race plays as as, as small a role as, as possible to avoid these, these constitutional problems that a, a different construction would have. Uh, Rick Rogers interested in your thoughts, and, and so am I. What do you think of his suggestion that the conservative justices might, without formally striking down Section 2 as unconstitutional, construe it uh, to uh, require not uh, the kind of race consciousness that it had been assumed to require in the past? Sketch out what that kind of opinion might might look like. Sure. And I think, first of all, I think uh, that some voting rights advocates were nervous that the Supreme Court would use this case as a means of more narrowly construing the Voting Rights Act or construing the Voting Rights Act broadly and then holding that the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional or suggesting that it's unconstitutional. And so you saw not just the, the uh, United States in its brief you know, for the Department of Justice and the Lawyers Committee filing briefs supporting neither side and trying to get the case sent back to the lower court for more fact-finding. Um, uh, it was uh, 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 something that was lurking in the background of the case, but having um, reviewed the oral argument, uh, it seems to me that this is not the case where that's going to happen. Uh, in fact, one of the biggest uh, questions is whether or not uh, Justice Scalia and Chief Justice Roberts are going to buy Alabama's argument that they were actually complying with the Voting Rights Act by packing these voters in, which, which seems to go against at least... Uh, the way the Department of Justice had always, has always understood uh, the Voting Rights Act to be read, so as not to minimize um, minority uh, voting strength. But I do think that down the line, there's certainly the possibility that the court could rein in Section 2, just like it struck down Section 5. And to do that would require overturning not just Thornburg versus Jingles, the 1986 case that really established this requirement for jurisdictions to create majority-minority districts when, when minority uh, voters are large and compact enough and there's racially polarized uh, voting in a jurisdiction. Not just Thornburg, but a whole series of cases where the court has construed the Voting Rights Act and Congress has renewed the act with an understanding that this is what the act requires. So it would be, it'd be quite a, a big step for the court to uh, minimize the reach of Section 2. I don't think it's going to happen in this case, uh, but it could happen in a case uh, coming up. Uh, you know, a after this one. 
Uh, Roger, uh, Justice Kennedy seemed to be one of the key votes in this case, as he often is, and, and he seemed to reject the state's argument that the map was justified by the Voting Rights Act, but was sympathetic to the idea that it was uh, the redistricting was mostly a partisan act. What did you make of Justice Kennedy's questions? Could he prove to be the decisive vote, and might he favor something short of the kind of reinterpretation of Section 2 that you sketched out a moment ago? <laughs> well, it's uh, always a safe bet that uh, Justice Kennedy's vote is going to be a crucial one, uh, so I, I would answer that question, yes. Um, you know, I don't, uh, as, as I recall, he might have been talking more about Section 5, I think, rather than Section 2 in that exchange. And uh, again, because this is kind of, you know, uh, a transitional case and that Section 5 is really not in the mix anymore, um, I think that the conservative justices have more leeway to to, to say that, well, um, this is what Alabama might have been concerned about, you know, under Section 5, without really having to say whether that was a a, a valid consideration or not, because Section 5 is not, um, you know, in the in the mix anymore. So, um, I, 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 as I say, I, uh, Jeff, I, I suspect that this is going to be a fairly, um, you know, splintered decision. It, you know, it would not surprise me if. Um, uh, you, you, I mean, uh, Rick does a very good job uh, in his SCOTUS blog piece of, of saying that there were there are sort of three ways that the court, you know, could go, and I think that there's a good chance that there'll be at least one justice going each of the three ways, and maybe two, um, you know, with 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 no majority decision. Great. Well, I think that sets up our closing arguments well. Rick, why don't you share with our listeners the three ways that you think the court could rule? And then just for the heck of it, uh, tell us which of the three you think they're, they're most likely to choose. Well, so the three ways that uh, the court could go is, one, they could side with Alabama, and they could say either that uh, Alabama was um, justified in doing this because it was required by the Voting Rights Act, uh, or they could say uh, it wasn't required by the Voting Rights Act, but Alabama had a good faith belief that it was uh, required by the Voting Rights Act, and therefore what it did was... Uh, uh, was uh, permissible, uh, or they could say, uh, and some combination of justices could say, this is really a partisan gerrymander, and therefore it was all okay. The result of of that possibility, uh, those different permutations on that first possibility, is that Alabama's redistricting stands, and uh, that's the end of it. And and um, the racial gerrymandering case remains out there, but it does not get expanded. Uh, the second thing that can happen, and this is what the United States urged is that the case could be sent back for more fact-finding, and this would essentially, instead of looking at the question uh, whether the entire state's redistricting process was infected with a predominant purpose to make uh, race uh, uh, the most important factor in redistricting, look at this on a district-by-district basis. This didn't seem to have a lot of support. I think this is the least likely outcome. Justice Breyer said it looked like a whole lot of trouble to get to the same result. And then the third option is that the court uh, accepts the challenger's idea, says this was a racial gerrymander, that Alabama did not have a need under uh, Section 5 to pack these minority voters in. And the result of that would be that uh, Alabama would get to redraw its districts. And uh, I end the, the, by saying that whether the first or the third of these ends up happening, or even the second, uh, Alabama is going to end up with a partisan gerrymander. It's going to be able to draw districts, even if it's get, uh, it is required to redraw districts, and be able to draw districts that will help Republicans and hurt Democrats, just as Democrats, when they're in control, draw districts to help Democrats and hurt Republicans. 
uh, it'll just do so in a less racially conscious way and avoid the pitfall of the uh, of, uh, of this racial gerrymandering claim. Uh, the difference this time is that when Alabama would pass a new plan, it would not be subject to federal pre-approval because Section 5 is no longer uh, valid right now against the state of Alabama. Uh, and uh, I should say that Chief Justice Roberts asked whether that concerned uh, the uh, Solicitor General who's arguing the case, and the uh, Solicitor General really just said, it is what it is, uh, kind of resignation that uh, uh, we're at a certain point where uh, the uh, question of whether or not a state can engage in a partisan gerrymander has basically been resolved, and it's just a question of doing the partisan gerrymander in a way that doesn't uh, bring race too much into the picture. Great. Uh, Roger, the last word to you. Uh, if you like Rick's typology, which of the three options do you think the courts will choose, and are you any more troubled than the Solicitor General about the idea that while racial gerrymandering is being increasingly restricted, partisan gerrymandering is essentially unregulated. I think that a majority of the justices are going to vote to uh, affirm, and that is that they're going to uphold um, what the state of Alabama and, and the Republicans did. And I think that that's the right result. Um, and yeah, I, I think that uh, it's a, a, a good outcome, not only uh, in this case, but in particular, if the result is that uh, race is now considered less, uh, I don't think it should be considered at all, but it certainly will be a good thing if it's considered less when uh, when states engage in in redistricting. And um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, the law is going to uh, creep toward. Uh, colorblindness uh, when it comes to what officials are allowed to do uh, in in the voting area. I, I think they should not be discriminating against anyone in uh, in, in their decision-making. There should be no race-based decision-making. On that clear and ringing note, uh, let me thank you, Roger Clegg and Rick Hassan, for a stimulating discussion of one of our most complicated and important constitutional questions. Uh, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.